Past, Present, Future Live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we bring you a conversation with Eric D. Johnson, the founder of the band Fruit Bats and a member of the supergroup Bonnie Light Horseman. The new Fruit Bats album, The Pet Parade, comes out this week. Having grown up in Chicago, Eric put out his first record, Echo Location, in 2001 and was signed by Sub Pop. He's made seven records with Fruit Bats, toured with The Shins for a few years, and has put out a solo album as well. We talked about his practical approach to his music career, the evolution of his music and songwriting, and how an opening slot for My Morning Jacket brought him back to Fruit Bats. We also came full circle in terms of Chicago and talked about our mutual love for the Smashing Pumpkins album Siamese Dream, which he recently covered in full. After the interview, you'll hear Eric play The Balcony, All in One Go, and Cub Pilot. And there's a Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes. If you like what you hear on Past, Present, Future Live, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's my interview with Eric D. Johnson. All right, I'm here with Eric. How's it going, man? It's going just okay. You know, as good as anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you for joining. We have a lot to talk about because I have a lot of questions, but I want to go back to the start and ask you if you have an earliest musical memory. I have so many musical memories early. Like my parents were radio people. They always listen to Top 40 radio. I think my earliest musical memory is the first Boston album, um, which came out the year I was born. I think I may have even been like probably in the late stage of being in the womb when I first heard that record, I I always like to say. And that record is, you know, it's a classic kind of guitar, quote unquote, butt rock record. But when I hear it, that record is very mystical for me for some reason. Mm. I can't I can't hear that as anything other than some kind of very mysterious and mystical pre-memory. There are a lot of mystical elements to that album, I guess. But that that's uh, yeah, that first Boston record, which is like it's a weird one, you know, to have as your yeah. first. But uh, um, but my parents were they were like top 40 radio people. They always liked uh, what was whatever was happening at the time, especially, you know, 70s and 80s. So I grew up on 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, what was on the radio? I, I like know all that stuff backwards and forwards. And my dad had uh, all kinds of records and 45s and stuff. And I had a little collection of his 45s that I stole and would play on this little clown record player um yeah so yeah lots of music in our house did your parents collect records it sounds like there was all kinds of music being played and yeah and 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 again i i say like they collected records but it's not like uh you sometimes hear interviews with the uh, musicians and they're like my parents were like jazz collector but they they were not hip you know they they just bought records of the the stuff that was going on like my dad's musical taste you could tell had like evolved over the years, but he had his records from his childhood were like poppy folk revival stuff with skiffle records. And he had Lonnie Donegan and uh, the Kingston mm-hmm. trio and uh, the new Christy minstrels. And so we had those records, which I always thought were, I like the Kingston trio, but I thought the other stuff was kind of 
square, even when I was like six. And then he liked sixties rock, you know, like he liked the, the young rascals and, uh, and then he got into like set, you know, he was in his twenties in the seventies. So he liked, uh, Boston and Aerosmith and stuff like that. So we, we had sort of like, it ran the gamut, but it was all of a, of a piece for me. And my mom liked uh, the carpenters. <laughs> okay, cool. Did you take to music early on? Can you remember a moment where that was more than just like what you listened to, but something that you actually wanted to learn more about and pursue? I didn't actually start really pursuing playing music until I was 16. So no, it was like, I, I was interested in all of it. I probably, I always knew I liked some kind of creative thing. I was interested in writing. I was interested in like movie making. I was always sort of doing little things like that. But music was never like, it was It was all equal and all very uh, equally implausible <laughs> seeming too. There was no one in my family doing anything like that. And it was it was on the same level with just being an astronaut or being one of the Ghostbusters or something like that. It was uh, it was just this weird, impossible thing to imagine. But yeah, the music part was a little bit of an accident later. It was just like joining some bands, um, kind of coming in through the side door and, and being able to tour. And I always just call it proof of concept. Every step for me has been like that, where you kind of blunder into a, a room <laughs> Or something and you're like you see how the cogs and gears work you know for this next step and then it's like any education sort of learning how something works it was just like just a little bit of luck a little bit of uh blindly stumbling into the right situation a couple times and figuring out how it works that seems like you're not giving yourself enough credit because your first album that came out in 2001 like what happened before that did you start actively writing songs and and bringing people together and like pushing harder on the musical front before that or did it still feel like you were trying to figure it out? I was still trying to figure it out. And I, I had started playing in sort of a band when I was about 16 because I was a good singer. I was always good at singing. I could not play any instrument, really. I sort of had some rudiments of keyboard playing down from just having like a piano in the house. But I never had taken piano lessons or anything. I was good at music, I think, but uh, sort of preternaturally, but not not trained or anything. And my uh, junior high band teacher told me that I had no musical talent. I mean, he was like an old man that I thought was an idiot. So it, w- it wasn't one of those things where I was like, and then it ruined my life. I was like, whatever, screw you. But so when I was 16, these guys were like, you should join our band and become the singer because they knew I was a good singer. And I was like mortified to just stand there and sing. It, it seemed like only like Bono could do that or something. I, I didn't, the, the concept of sort, sort of standing there and figuring out how to quote work a mic was not was like just beyond my brain so i quickly decided to learn get a crash course in guitar chords from the the guitar player of that band who was my also my best friend so he kind of gave me this like crash course um in chords but then this was a cover band they were playing like guns and roses covers and you know the and doors and <laughs> stuff like that mm-hmm. and i was like mm-hmm. i had learned five chords i was like how does one apply these five chords that I played badly, even as the rhythm guitarist, you know, like it was just beyond my brain. It probably should have been a punk band that I joined because it wasn't even like a power chords kind of thing where I could learn. To right. sing. So long story short, I always sort of attribute this to me becoming a songwriter because I realized I know these five chords or so I could just mash them all together and like write something so I started just writing original songs right out of the gate. And rather than start it off as a cover band, which a lot of people do, I, I sort of went the other way around because I just was clueless about how to make it work. So, And then that first time you get together with people in a room, 
I mean, they always talk about it. You always sort of hear it in the musical autobiography. It is so true the first time you hear like guitar, bass and drums and everything amplified in a room together. And it's probably invariably bad. (laughs) Like when I think that it was probably sounded really terrible, but it's it's the most incredible feeling ever Mm -hmm. um, of just sort of hearing that all together. So that's certainly a way to get bit by that kind of bug. Yeah, then it took me like six more years until I was in my early 20s and I did a band like a like a real band, you know, mm-hmm. with a little bit of ambition, but th- which was really no more than just getting like Tuesday night slot at like the indie rock club or so, that I thought was cool in Chicago at the time. So it was like very small. Uh, it was ambitious, but certainly not like we're going to get a label or go on tour or anything like that. Even though I in the back of my mind, I always wondered how that might work. And then we literally played like I could probably count the shows on one hand how many shows we played in that band and then i the miraculous thing happened which was i joined the band caliphone which was um still is a band um and a great band and i it was a, a band i was a fan of and uh we went on tour and we opened for modest mouse and like it's the the aforementioned just it was a sudden proof of concept of like I jumped 10 notches in knowledge for that. And that was in 2000. And it was a, like a five week tour of the whole country. I'd, I'd really never been anywhere outside of the Midwest and met everybody, saw how it all worked. And I remember like the, one of the last drives on that tour, just kind of like sitting there and thinking to myself, okay, this is, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like, I, I think I can do this and I need to like get home and like get to work. So, um, and that was spring of 2000. Very Midwestern of you. You got to go home and get back to work. Yeah, exactly. Very like Protestant. Yeah, I think (laughs) Protestant work ethic uh, runs strong in the family. I'm from Ohio, so I, I, I understand. It sounded like when you put out Echolocation, which came out in 2001, that you've said before, like, if you're a 23-year-old today, that can't happen for you anymore because there's no, like, developmental league. And I'm curious, like, did you see that album as a proof of concept also? Yes, it was so crazy and incredible to just be working in like a real studio with a because I had been doing four track stuff. And that was the, so the, the just the feeling of uh, putting something down and then multi-tracking something and hearing it come together. It was the same feeling as uh, that I had had when I first played in a live room. It's just like another one of those things where you're like, oh, my God, this is this is how this feels. So that next step of going into a real studio and sort of hearing it through real speakers and playing through like expensive uh, instruments, it it was pretty amazing. Um, But at the same time, I can't help but think I thought I will never do this again, probably, which was often my feeling (laughs) on these things, which was like, so that record, when I hear it, A, I was young, B, I don't think I had my grasp on songwriting yet. And I think I also was trying to get every idea that I ever had had for the past six years down, um, which I think happens a lot with debuts, which can either be awesome or not awesome. Or in that case, I I don't want to like put that record down, but it's like it was it was a different era for me. And that's why I always say that it was easier back then because you kind of stumble a little out of the gates. I think now you have to come screaming out of the gates. And I stumbled, but I think in a charmingly ramshackle way. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting, like listening to all of your albums, that you can hear evolution in a way that is pretty remarkable. Like, I think all of your albums sound different and seem to reflect different points in your life, which I want to ask you more about. That's the way I hear a lot of those albums, which is cool because it's not the same experience just like with new songs. 
on each album. As you moved along, you were really communicating what you were going through or the state of mind in each of these albums. Is that, did you look at it like that? Like, did you go into it wanting to communicate like, this is how I see the world right now? Or is that just what came through? I did, but it would, it took me like a few albums to realize that you could do that. I think like the first few was like kind of a blur and uh, it's the sound of me learning how to communicate. And I think it wasn't until probably the ruminant band album or or tripper or like those records from the 2009 to 2011 kind of period where i was like i i can hear myself uh becoming more confident and again it was like a thing of being like do you even belong here my upbringing was very like don't be too fancy or (laughs) something like that and i i sort of hear that on those records but um luckily people heard something in those i think i've always written and made records in a world. And I think thankfully people like sub pop records and things like that heard that early on. But again, keep going back to like, it just wouldn't work now. They wouldn't be like, Oh, this is, this sounds like a world. (laughs) So yeah, I, uh, I got lucky. The number one rule of the internet is never read the comments, but the first album that Pitchfork said, this band is destined for the bargain bin. I'm curious how that Well, first of all, you know, did you go back to that person who wrote that and like, you know, five years later and say like, screw you. And also just like between that on the one end, but then getting signed by Sub Pop on the other end of the spectrum. Like, how did you feel after that album was out there and you start getting reviews and, you know, positive and negative and then also you're getting signed to a legendary label? Like, what was that like? That is like one thing I have to give myself credit for. I think if you can weather that especially if you can weather the bad criticism and and all of it all together, you probably have a pretty good chance of like keeping on. Like I I definitely know people who would almost for a fact who got reviews like that back then and who just stopped. Like they couldn't, it was like whatever it was inside of them or with their ego that they needed uh, validation from. And that was back when Pitchfork was really mean too. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, they said I was destined. I mean, it was basically like my first really big review said this is like destined for failure, which was like really pretty harsh. And I remember I didn't even have my own computer at the time. I was at work at the Old Town School of Folk Music and was sitting at the front desk working as a receptionist and like surfing the Internet as I did at that time and being like, oh, my God. And I had to like leave. I'd leave to go like smoke a cigarette. Someone take over the desk for me. But later learned don't read reviews in general um yeah yeah but i was too young to know that and i would like any young artist i would if i could give them advice it's just be like just be ready a don't read the comments exactly but b you might (laughs) accidentally read the comments or you might want to see a pitchfork review of your band because back then it was like it could make or break you and uh you know be prepared for that and like steal yourself because uh it is um that's going to happen or you're going to get lots of really good reviews and feel like you're invincible and you get the one bad one and it really breaks you. So it was ultimately it was good for me. It was it was definitely it was character building. And what about the sub pop part? I mean, did you feel like you were now part of this like legendary album and family? And did that give you more confidence and more inspiration moving forward? Yeah, that was a huge step. And I think there's always like the one thing every year or or every few years or something that happens like that, because I got signed to Sub Pop that I, and then all of my friends, we all got signed kind of at the same time. Everyone got huge except for me (laughs) and uh, and not everyone, but like I was definitely one of the, definitely kind of the B team. Um, And uh, I don't say that in like a bad way, but just in a way of like, 
it was my peers uh, on that label were like the Shins and Iron and Wine. We had, we had toured together, you know, when we were all kind of nobodies. And so I was watching all of them really take off and me sort of wondering when that was going to happen for me. But again, I was like, well, I'm here. I'm signed to this amazing label. So maybe something will happen. And I was like, if I'm good enough for them, I'm good enough for somebody. So it continued to be that that kind of learning experience. So, Eric, you mentioned the Shins and, and you knew them. And I understand that in 2006, another big milestone for you happened when you were asked to join them. And it seems like that was like a pretty big uh, milestone for you. It was incredible. I had the second soap pop release had come out the previous year. We toured like crazy. You know, it was just like and kind of nothing happened with it. It was another one of those where I sort of put it out and we were just like, it was still that kind of classic pre-streaming, pre heavy social media phase where you just kind of put out an album and then you toured on it for a year and then you waited another year and it was like if if nothing happened really nothing happened so i had just toured like crazy on that last one once again sort of like other bands kind of like coming up around me getting big and running in the little soap pop universe and some years back i ran into a friend who i hadn't seen in a while and um he said he's like i remember seeing you in like 2005 and you said I'm going to quit like, uh, or like after this one, I'm going to quit, which I didn't even remember thinking or saying, but were you feeling that? I think I must've been. And I remember just feeling kind of bad, like around 2006 being like, I just kind of need like a, a little shakeup. I need like a, another world to go live in. And, um, I got that call and that was super crazy because, and I also, I was like, maybe I, I actually did have to think about it for a minute too, because I thought this is going to kind of derail my own thing. People kept saying, congratulations. I was like, I just got asked to join somebody else's huge band. I didn't really like, uh, <laughs> I didn't really do anything, but it turned out to be the best thing ever because it was another one of those proof of concept things where I got to see sort of how this whole next level worked. Um, but also with these old friends of mine who I had come up with from the very beginning, I got to travel the world. And most important thing was I got to make money doing music. It was the end of uh, day jobs for me, which was crazy Mm -hmm. um, because I had been kind of cranking along on trying to do music for, I guess it was like 10 years at that point. So it was really cool. (laughs) And uh, it didn't make me like a cablillionaire or anything, but it it funded the sort of next round of fruit bats more or less too, where I could really dive back into that and be extra serious about it before it had been like, kind of higher catches catch can band lineups they didn't get paid or whatever and it was like the when i finally got to come back through i was like everybody gets paid like we got more into big kid touring and i think it it manifested itself into some just better things for me so what did you learn musically from those guys i mean it seems like stepping into a a huge band in terms of their shows and momentum and all that like what were your takeaways i mean any time you play with someone else you're gonna get something out of it it's weird that i've been a side guy in general because i don't even consider myself i'm certainly not some kind of shredding uh sesh guy i'm a good harmony singer which is hard to find and then i can play every instrument relatively well so i'm a i'm a sort of a good like you know utility infielder kind of Mm -hmm. uh, to use baseball terms (laughs) so james's songs are 
so deceptively they're deceptively simple or de- deceptively difficult they're they're so ca- they're like beatles songs or something where or elliot smith where you're like oh this is like i know every in and out of this and you actually sit down and dissect the chords and they're totally complicated and like just yeah. so, so interesting and so all of his songs are like in the keys of a and f sharp and kind of we- weird keyboard keys for me it wasn't just like plunking at white keys anymore so it was uh <laughs> It was a total education in that. And then, of course, just being thrust onto the biggest stages possible all of a sudden um, after years of like very modest kind of indie rock stuff. So this was uh, it was like uh, you got to pretend you belong there kind of thing. You have to you have to pretend when you're on Saturday Night Live that you <laughs> that you you've always been there. I had to play a guitar solo on SNL <laughs> with a cameraman uh, looking at my fingers. I don't really even play guitar solos. And yeah, so it was, it was things like that, but it's really, that's really good for you. That's like some, uh, some serious exercise for your spirit. Yeah. I mean, the, the Shins are one of my favorite bands of that whole decade, just in terms of my musical identity and what I was listening to. And there's so much of it that was just the melodies and the writing. And I mean, everything was just, simple but complicated yeah that was the other byproduct of how amazing that was was just playing like a song like new slang every night and being like this Mm -hmm. is one of the greatest songs ever written and i get to play it every single night so yeah it was really cool as cool as one would think (laughs) i've read that you like you learned more about the business side as well at that point which is probably helpful for moving forward yeah and by the business side i don't know because i it was like it wasn't like their business was transparent you know they were big enough at that point where I wasn't like dealing with the business, but it's certainly, I learned about just how a band of that size operated a little bit. And I'm I'm still never reached that size, but uh, it was, it was another one of those where I was like, I'd like to get here. I'd, I'd like to sort of operate slightly on this side of things rather than being like this uber scrappy indie outfit that I had been for so long. Yeah. You just sort of see how a, a big machine like that operates a little bit. You mentioned the album, The Ruminant Band, which came out in 2009. And I think you've mentioned this a little bit earlier in our conversation and elsewhere. This was like a kind of a different thing. And I think listening to that album, you can hear it. It seems like this was like a different take from you. What were you feeling going into the making of that album? I really, it almost felt like a new band in a way. And I I wanted to rename the band at that time. I wanted to rename the band The Ruminant Band, which is how the album sort of became that name. And it was sort of like a sort of an album about a fake band in a way that was a real band Mm -hmm. and it was a better use of my influences which i had been you know in those first few early years of like sub pop and there wasn't like a a crossover of people who were employing sort of classic sounds and i liked the dead and a lot like a lot of the west coast country rock records and bands like beachwood sparks and stuff had done it but very few and so we were sort of getting sold in the same vein as a lot of these indie bands at that time which i loved those bands but if you were like a death cab for cutie fan or something you would maybe hear the first couple fruit bats records and be like i don't know like it, it wasn't it wasn't that we weren't coming from sort of a post smiths uh world so i had been playing in vetiver um and sort of touring with those guys before making the ruminant band record and and like getting to know some of the Bay Area bands and LA bands and really getting influenced by them. And there was like a little influx of like Fleet Foxes and Blitz and Trapper and other bands like that on Sub Pop. There was starting, I was starting to feel like uh, I really had some kind of fellow travelers. And yeah, there was a nice little groundswell of uh, 
what I had been trying to do suddenly kind of made more sense and also probably coincided with me being able to like write a little bit better and arrange a little bit better. I like those first three Fruit Bats records. They're just like, again, I, I hear them now as, uh, as sort of baby steps in a learning process. Based on your journey, that makes a lot of sense. As you put this album out there, like, did it feel like your musical identity was like solidified at that point in terms of Fruit Bats? Yeah, for many people, I think it was like the first record they heard, at least like whatever the small sample size of people I chat with at merch table record signings and things like that, but, <laughs> or like Instagram comments. And honestly, it's like, if you come to our live shows, you're probably mostly going to hear things from that era on, you know, maybe a, a couple of ones from the first three, but uh, there are some enduring songs on that album that are like, have become kind of staples of the live set, like the Ruminant Band song itself and Flamingo and um, some real like kind of enduring favorites, I think, for fans. So, which is cool. How do you approach the songwriting process? Do you go through the same process? Is it always different? Like, what does that look like in terms of creative? It's always pretty different. It's a collage uh, method. I like to describe it. I've sort of realized it's kind of a collage method, which is to say it's snippets of lyrics, it's snippets of music. Um, They all get eventually kind of mashed together and and like a, a chorus from this song might migrate over to another and they they sort of slowly start to come together you know and i work in pro tools now but i still come from that four track background where the studio is part of the writing process for me too so it's um a lot of times it's sort of getting something recorded and coming back to it and cutting it up so my dream is to be able to like rent a cabin somewhere and sit down with like just a tape recorder and an acoustic guitar and write songs like that. But I don't, it's like, I've tried a million times. It's really, really hard for me. I, yeah, I have to have like a laptop in front of me and yeah, a recording setup. So you'll start with a, an idea and then just sort of build sounds around it, basically? Is that like oversimplified? No, that's about it. And, and sometimes it's, I'll start off with a drum groove or something and just play guitar along to it. But, um, yeah, or sometimes it's like I wrote down a line a long time ago where I'm like, I'm excited about that line. Would that work in here? And it does or it doesn't. Sometimes it's just a little guitar figure and I'll mumble lyrics over it. There's not really a way that I do it other than the only thing I don't do is that real traditional singer-songwriter kind of guy with an acoustic guitar. E- even though often I get things from that, I have you know voice memo upon voice memo of me doing that or sort of trying, but it's been very rare where I just sit down and just bust one out straight through with the, the acoustic guitar. How I would imagine some like a ma- like Guy Clark or somebody like that would just be like able to just write 10 of those a day or John Prine or, you know, some, some great Joni Mitchell, some great classic singer songwriter. But I wish I always kind of wish I could do that. But you get something out of it, which is important. And and knowing the process, you know, that works is obviously important for anyone, especially making music. Yeah, I've gotten so much better at it, too. Like, I'm just I'm just more meticulous now. And it's sort of like no line left behind. I'm, I'm not like, yeah, I don't want to put any filler anymore lyrically or otherwise. I want to talk about the solo record that came out in 2014, EDJ. Why did you decide to do that? And was that experience different in terms of the writing, the production and, and everything else? It was part of that whole what I was at <clears throat> at the time, which I had sort of started to 
conceive of with like the ruminant band idea and the just the notion of of me being like i'm a new artist in a way um at that moment it felt like and then just some stuff happening in my life and just the the sort of usual crush of things and thinking to myself i need to just retire this name um even though the name was me so i did that record and then what happened was nothing <laughs> and i i was i toured and it would say edj parentheses fruit bats and i joke about the parentheses <laughs> all the time but it's completely true where i was just like they would they would have to ask like can we put fruit bats in parentheses and and i'm like people don't pay attention to parentheses on billboards you know like uh, you can't uh, there's like like no one migrated over uh, i don't blame them it's just like we had reached a point in 2014 when that record came out, when it was, we were sort of getting into social media and everybody, it, it was just like, there's saturation. People want that sort of comfort of like the thing they know. They don't, it was the thing I was saying. It's, it's just harder to be a, a new artist now. You kind of have to come screaming out of the gate. So I sort of believed that I was going to be able to do this reinvention. But what the fun byproduct was of that record was I've always, uh, Andy from Vetiver and I always joke that we love these uh, lost classic records and we have perhaps doomed ourselves to becoming them uh, by emulating them so much. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I made my lost classic now. So, I mean, it's kind of my favorite record of mine in a way because uh, it's always the latest thing is always my favorite record. But but it's in a way, it's sort of my sort of wayward child that I love the most because uh, A, because I... I didn't have to tour on it like crazy and get sick of all those songs <laughs> the way it can happen. So I, uh, yeah, it's like I can, I can still kind of come back to that one. And then I realized I lost all my infrastructure, lost my booking agent, lost my manager, like everyone failed. And I was like, this sucks. Um, a few other things happened too. I got offered a My Morning Jacket tour and we ended up sort of doing it as Fruit Bats. We, we had like a little, it was like in 2015, that year after that EDJ record, I, I realized I was like, you could just change a couple words back and possibly get your life back on track. So that was like, I was like, if that's all I have to do, so be it. It seems like based on what I read, that was like the Jim James, my money jacket interaction that started, that brought you back to Fruit Bats, I guess, if you will. That's how I read it. Seems like that was like another serendipitous moment for you. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's so often come from the kindness of more successful peers, which I think is like something that is missing in this day and age. There used to be sort of like there was a, a certain kind of patronage at some point where you could you could do that. And again, I think in the I think in the like the loud era that we live in by loud, I just mean there's so much stuff and content and uh, it's like hard to get that anymore where it's like, oh, a band I like likes this band. We will listen to them. That's really happened for me a few times, which is really, really awesome. And yeah, basically the Jacket guys invited, they invited EDJ to do my little solo set opening for them. And I was like, that is not going to translate to those type of stages. So I got the Fruit Bats, uh, sort of a new lineup of Fruit Bats together, which has sort of become my, the sort of core lineup I've used for since then. And then the serendipity also was like their lighting crew needed practice. So ended up lighting us. Their stage was on risers, nice. so they'd moved the stage for us every night. So it wasn't one of those, like, sometimes you see those opening bands in amphitheaters, and it's like they play at 4.45 p.m. for 20 minutes, and <laughs> they're crammed up against uh, the 
the headliner's drum kit and stuff, and you can you can barely make them out. They're really quiet, you know. <laughs> like uh, this was like when you visually would look at it, we were like lit, perfectly lit, and uh, with the whole stage, and we looked, uh, we just looked really legit. <laughs> and I think I think my morning jacket fans already maybe you know a quarter of them were fans of ours because there's some crossover with them. So every tenth person in the audience was singing along. So the 10 people around them were like, oh, I guess this is a thing. And yeah, it really like uh, managers and agents and people are always like, you got to you got to do these opening tours. They'll, it'll be huge for you. And it's always like total bullshit. But um, this was uh, this was like a case where I was like, oh, my God, that worked. Like when we got done with that tour, I was like that actually like worked. We, we watched that happen. It, there was nothing digital about it. It was like a totally uh completely like analog uh, marketing mission or something like where it's just like oh yeah that's like it was very it felt very old-fashioned which is refreshing So, Eric, Gold Past Life, which came out in 2019, again, I've mentioned this a few times, but felt like a a new sound. Did you have a different approach to putting that record together from previous ones? Or or can you tell me a little bit about how that came together? Having a a couple of years of hindsight on that and having made a a couple of records since then, I realized one thing about that record was like it was a, a really nice culmination of my work with Tom Monahan that I had done over the past 10 years or so we've worked on a lot of stuff together we still do and he's probably had been my closest collaborator as far as like studio stuff goes for a really really long time he and i had always worked in a way where i would give him demos that i sort of like my writing sessions more or less we would sort of start as jumping off points and and usually he would have to dismantle them pretty heavily for sonic purposes or whatever or he'd be like "Eh, this doesn't work you know he would produce me I think as we became closer and more of a team, I think that Gold Pass Life record, for one thing, was like, and Tom did tons, don't get me wrong, but like, it was one of those where when I listen back to the demos, I'm like, it was very like fully realized. Um, and there was definitely things that Tom had to take a serious blowtorch to as well. But uh, that was like a really great moment for Tom and I kind of coming together. And he had really kind of come to trust me um, to deliver him things. And he, he taught me how to record pretty much too. So I always sort of put things together for how I think Tom would want them to be heard. So it was like our, our brains finally melded on that one. So it was a we, we reached a production nexus on that one, I think would be. And uh, I think I, I wrote some cool stuff on that. It was like some some of my uh, proudest moments as a writer as well. Yeah, there's, I mean, and this has been written about a little bit in interviews. There's sort of a, a reflective nature to some of the songs, I think probably having been in the music world for a long time and kind of like, there's a little bit of reflecting on where you've come from. Yeah, I think for years too, as like most singer-songwriters are, sort of desperate to be understood you know and uh and i'm like but it's kind of your job to be understood too or or it's your job as a singer songwriter to understand that like not everybody's going to hear it the same way and i whatever i did on that one i felt uh i felt very heard and i don't know if it was my own success as a writer and really like with my conveyance or um if i've just the sort of culty audience that i've amassed over the years like totally coalesced on that one and and just got it but yeah i felt very like uh it was like one of those where i was like oh i think people kind of get this one so which was cool 
Casa Dera is one that's like on repeat uh, for me, which I think the lyrics in that are are kind of reflective of what I was referring to before. A little bit like a little bit nostalgic, but but not in like a overly done way. It feels like you're like just being reflective, but it but it's really it's a cool song and and great lyrics. And a lot of the tracks on here have like a like a '70s feel, but not nostalgic way. Like a fresh take on on some kind of 70s sounds which I really like I just like I think it came together really well thanks yeah I'm I'm proud of that song like I um that was like one of those where every once in a while you write a song and you're like I think I did good on this one so yeah I felt I felt uh I felt really happy about that and it's become like a an audience favorite you never really know what those kind of mid-tempo slightly ballady songs but that's uh like where if people are People want to jam, you know, but I was like, oh, people, people are singing along to this one, like pretty early on, which is great. We haven't talked about Bonnie Light Horseman and and we don't have time to get too far into it, but I just want to ask how it feels to be in a super group because that's like everywhere it's described in that way. And that's pretty cool. That's like, that seems like a career accomplishment. I know. I remember early on, we said in like our first like meeting with a publicist is like, can we please not be called a super group? But it just (laughs) happened anyway. And we're like, okay, whatever. Um, But because I said, I always was like a super group just sounds like someone from Yes should be involved. Uh, yeah, it should be like Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe, or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. So one of those guys should, needs to be involved to make it a super group. But yeah, no, it feels awesome. Like, A, it just feels cool to be in a new band, which I hadn't been in a new band since uh, the 90s. And uh, it's really fun being in a band where I'm the out of the spotlight and in the spotlight both. I like that. Um, but sort of like being a side person and a front person. I have like little two sides of myself for that. And, uh, and that I'm just a fan of those other two. And I can, I can be on the inside and the outside at the same time with that band. And, and like just the response to it has been crazy and I can't even believe it. Really cool record that came out um, that I, I think is is really cool. So people should check that out if you haven't heard of it. Although people listening probably have. I, I Before I let you go, I have to ask you about the Siamese Dream cover album because to me, this was, I was like 14 when it came out and every note is like seared into my memory and it's still like a top five album of all time for me. So I got to listen to that and it's a cool album to give that treatment to but what was the inspiration for you so you were 14 i was 17 when it came out in a way it was sort of like the last it was right before i got into like indie rock or something it was like the for me it was like the last alternative record it was like i could only have gotten into that record at that minute when it happened so it it has a real special place for me as probably of all the big radio alternative records of that era it's my favorite um, as much as I love Nirvana and they've probably aged better and um, most some of the Seattle bands, I think, too. But as far as like those those kind of big Titanic records, I, I was tasked with covering an entire album. And I was they said, pick one for some weird reason. Siamese Dream was the first thing I thought of. And then I like freaked out and I was like, I'm not going to be able to do that. And I changed my mind and they were like, no, you have to do Siamese Dream. They were they were like pretty adamant about it. They were like, the, the train has left the station. You got to do Siamese Dream. So it was like a really pretty cool, weird uh, process. I'm trying to reinterpret those and uh, and do it justice because it's like a record that has a total sound. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sort of strip them to their core, which is like still great pop songs. But it was just weird thinking about the CD era. That record is like crazy long. All the songs are like 
six minutes, even the radio songs, where I was just like, what a weird time. Like, we're sort of back in the 60s with how music works. Yeah. Now. You got, it's like everything is two minutes and 30 seconds now. And, and every, everybody releases on vinyl again now. So records have to be 41 minutes long. It's like vinyl and streaming so weird it's just like that record is like really old seeming in a really good way it's truly a classic now and uh when i made it i was like didn't realize how strongly people felt about it too and thank god like no one wants to kill me after i made it so i must have uh done it some kind of justice because i was like oh my god people love this they're gonna like be so pissed at me if i don't do it justice so hopefully i did I think you did. I mean, Hummer is my favorite song on the album. And I think that's, you know, it's just a, it's kind of a monster of a song with like the layering and the, I mean, it's just for many reasons. And uh, I think the cover's awesome. Um, so that's my, also my like favorite it. and always has been. Yeah, me too. I don't know. There's something about it. It's like, it's a very emotional song for me, but it's funny because that was like right before I started getting seriously into like you know the dead and fish and other stuff and i feel like that was probably the last big album for me before i went through this whole different journey musically and then but it always kind of stuck around so i guess i have the kind of the same memory of it that you do so we're going to let you go in a minute and listeners should stick around to hear some music but i guess i just want to ask like you've played with so many people you've done so much collaborating you put out a lot of albums what else do you want to do like what do you see especially maybe with live music coming back in 2021 at some point. What else do you want to do? I mean, if you asked me this a couple of years ago, it would have been like so many things. And because uh, I, I, I work on movies sometimes on scores and uh, soundtracks and things like that, which is a cool thing to do. But um, now it's like right now, I just want to get back on the road. Like I and I think I think in general, too, in the last few years since the EDJ record and since kind of the My Morning Jacket tour and, and kind of like things started to get better. I've realized that um, Fruit Bats and Bonnie Light Horseman too, just just being in these uh, projects that I can tour on and that people are interested for the time being in, it's the bird in hand, you know? Like I've become satisfied, I guess you could say, to some extent, even though I'm staying hungry is always the name of the game for me. You always want to be kind of looking, but but lately I've been like, man, these, these things are like working for me right now. So I'm like, uh, I just, I want to like give them attention and credence, you know? Um, but if you'd asked me this a couple of years ago, I'd have been like, I don't know, I'm going to like write a novel or something like that. But right now I'm like, no, I just want to like be in these uh, two bands that uh, people seem to like right now. I think that's a great plan. I would like to see both of those bands uh, live. Me too. I want to play in both of those bands live. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully we can both make that dream come true soon. Um, Well, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for joining and for uh, spending all this time with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And now here's Eric playing the balcony all in one go and cub pilot.
maybe once did as a kid But that was probably just a lake When you're stuck in amber Do you remember anything? Tell dreams from remembering Then it all comes to you All in one go And it was drizzling And maybe once he was in love With everyone and everything And his soul is whole He lives by a Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 